Welcome to Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. This is an episode-by-episode look at the award-winning TV show Friday Night Lights created by Peter Berg. I'm Stacey Orstano. I played Mindy Collette Riggins. And I'm Derek Phillips, and I play Billy Riggins. The assumption is that you, our listeners, have already watched the show. But if you haven't already, go watch Friday Night Lights, which is currently streaming on Netflix and Peacock TV, because there will be spoilers in our podcast. And we have merch. That's right, Stacey Oristano. We've got merchandise. Mm-hmm. Our website has been created by Eleanor Carez, who is at Eleanor Carez on Instagram. Our website is www.cleareyesfullheartspod.com. Once again, that's cleareyesfullheartspod.com. And we want to answer your fan questions. Email us what you want to know at cleareyesfullheartspod at gmail.com today. Season two, episode 12, Who Do You Think You Are? Written by Carrie Aaron. Directed by Michael Waxman. This is the NBC television synopsis. Tammy and Coach Taylor struggle with sending Gracie to daycare and Smash learns that those closest to him may not be ready for the interracial dating. I added the the. They're just not ready for interracial dating. We have a wonderful guest with us today, director Michael Waxman. But before we chat with Michael, let's get into the highlights of this episode. of the show. I find it a really weird way to tell somebody that you're leaving and moving to another country by saying, could you grab my suitcase? Yeah, it's abrupt to say <laughs> the least. That's one way to describe it. Yes, very abrupt. Mean. Yeah, especially given the circumstances of these two have grown into more than just, well, they're a couple, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You don't like it? I don't like it. <laughs> but then also, like, what happens to grandma? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I guess they would probably wind up sending somebody else to help be a caregiver. Do they? You know, I don't know. I hope so. I know what happens, but I can't tell you. And maybe I don't want to know. Matt Zurchery playing Chris Kennedy. I didn't know his name was Chris Kennedy. I had to look it up because I don't even know if they say his character's name. Guys, I love Matt. I'm in love with Matt. I worked with him on Gilmore Girls. He's the nicest person in the entire world. Oh my goodness. Does this mean we have another person that we're going to have to deal with? Another crush, Stacey? No, Another it's not. voodoo crush? No, it's not like that. He is just okay. genuinely a very cool person. I never even got a chance to meet Matt, but I mean, I respect his work. I definitely, I know who he is as an actor. Yes. Not just from Friday Night Lights, but the numerous other shows he's been a part of. Meanwhile, what's going on with this Stephen Kyle scene here? We should ask Steve. We don't know if Kyle has just decided this is who that character is and this is how he's going (laughs) to act towards them or did they have this conversation, but it's contentious, like always between them. Yeah, Coach doesn't really hide his disdain for Glenn at all, which is funny to me because in real life, Kyle was always very cool to Steve. Yeah. Actually invited us to a, a Dodgers game years back. But these are the kinds of scenes that the minute that they yell cut, you and the other actors start giggling. It's obviously that Kyle's trying his best to be dismissive of Glenn, and Steve is doing a wonderful job of being completely and totally loof of Coach's dismissiveness. Anytime these two are on, it's just, for me, it's a really fun scene. I love the two of them together. Then Devin Diablo shows up on the scene. Okay, so here's another thing, guys. This is Francis Capra, who I adore, adore, adore. He was on Veronica Mars, and he's so good. But it's another thing that Derek and I talk about all the time, where it's that FNL guest actor who comes in, he says one line, and I know exactly who he is. Just he powers into that scene, and I'm like, oh, yep. Got it. Yeah. I mean, we know right off the bat. I mean, if his objective is to make me worried about this relationship with Mm -hmm. Santiago, it's working. And I believe that is the objective. 
This guy definitely poses a threat to Santiago getting back on his feet after he just got out of juvenile hall. They still call it juvie. Is that what the yeah, kids call it these the days? Juvie. Yeah. Also, sidebar, I'm in love with Benny's dimples. They're so cute. I've noticed them, but I really noticed them in this scene. I just think they're adorable. So Kyle takes Gracie Bell from Tammy in bed. And there was just something about the like paternal nature. And Kyle's a paternal person in general. He has two daughters, but seeing him with a baby and just like my cold, cold heart started to melt. I tied it. Not like a lot, but a, a little bit. As I said before, I think it does help if you have had that experience. And I think that Kyle being a father to two kids or two daughters specifically, mm-hmm. it all seems very natural and very real and lived in. Like he's been that person before. And you can tell like when somebody is uncomfortable around babies or maybe doesn't like babies, but Kyle loves babies and it makes me very happy. Well, I remember in college and still to this day, I mean, I I see it happen. I used to run a theater company and I remember we were doing a production of Caucasian Chalk Circle. Cock Chalk. Cock Chalk for those in the theater world. And I remember there's a scene where she has to carry a baby. And I had a little brother growing up. I have two little brothers, actually. And I got very used to carrying babies around as a child because I was nine years older than one brother, 14 years older than another. So it was kind of normal for me to hold babies. And then watching some of these women who hadn't had children at this point in time, they think when we were doing cock chalk, most of the girls in the show were probably in their early 20s. And I was like, whoa, you can't hold a baby like that. Its neck would break. Let me show you how to do it. Am I mistaken? Weren't you a baby wrangler backstage? I was actually. Okay, so guys, at the same time, I was doing Sweeney Todd the same time they were doing Cock Shock and we share dressing rooms backstage like, and we all have the same green room and I would like walk off stage and it would just be Derek playing with a baby in the green room and it was very sweet. This was literally like a month before I booked Friday Night Lights and I remember at the time thinking, what the hell am I doing with my life right now? How is it that I am wrangling a two-year-old backstage who literally would just walk around going... No, mm-hmm. no. Mm-hmm. But it, Cock Chalk, there was a young baby. I mean, there's supposed to be like a newborn baby that was literally just swaddling clothes. Kyle has obviously held a baby before. He knows his way around a baby. This way around a baby. Okay. Do you remember there was a scene in the Alamo Freeze or the diner thing, whatever, and the cops come in and we're scared because we think they're going to say something to Landry. Yes. And I'm sitting at the table with my sister and I'm telling her about my brilliant idea of having a bikini lawn mowing business. Yes, I remember this. This is the scene. As I was in this episode, you're never going to see me. So this scene with Matt and Landry outside. They were outside sitting like on the car or wherever they were doing because they were watching me and my friends mow lawns in the bikini. But that was all cut. And then it was just a scene with them. So I'm like, "Mm, did we look bad in our bikinis? (laughs) I don't think it's that. I think sometimes, I mean, I remember there was a scene in third or fourth season that Taylor and I shot that on paper read fairly comedically when we were stealing the copper wire. It was supposed to be more like Keystone Cops-esque. They break into this place, they're tripping, they're falling. A dog chases after them. They jump through the U-Haul van window. And like the way that they edited it and put music under it, suddenly it became a very dramatic scene. And it was like, whoa. (laughs) That's not what we did. No, yeah. And I think that maybe because of the nature of that scene, it was like, okay, that's not necessarily the story we're probably trying to tell right now. I don't think it's an attack on your acting or anything that anyone at was doing. At the end of the scene is me screaming at Landry, what are you looking at? So that's not there. <laughs> 
Yes, I know. I was in that scene. Just know, <laughs> just know that that happened. I have to say, Minka Kelly has a really perfect radio voice. She does. She it's does. so soothing. It's like music. <laughs> this is just in general a fun little scene, but Street is right. I mean, this is the equivalent of an elementary school boy pulling a girl's pigtails because he thinks she's cute. It's funny and it makes me laugh because it's very Taylor and very Tim. I feel like that was all Taylor. I want to know if any of that was scripted because that was a Taylor giggle too. Yeah. Again, on this same token of this radio show that she's doing now, Lila says to Tim that she gets up at 4 a.m. to do a Christian teen call-in show, and then she goes back after school. My question, who are these teens that are calling into a radio show that early in the morning? Teens with sex questions, Stacy. Can they not sleep? No, I'm going to change the format of this podcast, and we're going to start answering sex questions if you're not careful. Oh my God, that's terrifying. Yes, it is. Get your sex questions answered by Billy Riggins. That's Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, <laughs> Clear Eyes, Full Hearts, sexpod.com. We'll do it, I swear. I don't know who these teens are. That is a little strange to me. 4.35 in the morning. Maybe they pre-record it. It's live calling. No, I don't know. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I don't know. I'm beflexed. Okay, anyone who knows me knows one of my biggest fears in the world is confrontation. I hate it. I'll do anything to avoid it. There'll be like a Stacy-shaped hole in the wall. So you can imagine this scene with Smash's family and Noel's family. It's so, so awkward. And I was filled with anxiety. I'm just going to be honest with you. This whole episode gives me anxiety. The Santiago, yeah, uh, Devin Diablo stuff with the buddy situation on top of it. The Lila Christian sex therapist situation makes me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Tammy bringing Gracie to school makes me uncomfortable. Like when she actually brings her to the high school. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, Coach Mac, there was so much growth. I would call it two steps forward, one step back because he told us, well, coach and us peripherally, his views on women and women working. And my heart got a little sad. <laughs> Your frozen heart came back. Yeah. When Mac McGill says, well, sometimes the truth is stupid and ignorant. It made me think this is pretty much Mac McGill in a nutshell. And it's probably why he's not the head coach. Because of his views on women. Not just his views on women. It's his views in life. Because to think that, well, sometimes the truth is just stupid and ignorant tells me that you're a guy who's incapable of making change. Mm. He's just a guy who's set in his ways. He's old school. He's not willing to change or make adjustments, which is really, frankly, an awful trait, not only in life, but especially as a football coach. Because if you're not capable of making adjustments, if your game plan is to go out there and do one thing and the other team is doing another thing and you're getting your butt kicked, you need to make a change. You don't just stick to the same thing over and over again if it's not working. I do see that quote on his tombstone. Mac McGill, football coach, father, and husband. Well, sometimes the truth is stupid and ignorant. That should be on his tombstone. At least coach didn't like fully listen to him. No. Coach was smart enough not. Okay. Again, we have Carlotta and Matt dancing. And Carlotta says, put your hand on my back. Carlotta, no. Do you not remember that that is the line that got us into this mess in the first place when you said it in the kitchen? It's true. And I like that you noticed that. Well, callback? It is a little callback. That is 100% how this whole situation started. But you're anti-Carlotta. I'm very pro-Carlotta. I like Carlotta. <sighs> Do you? I think it's awesome that Matt is getting a hookup with his hot grandmother's caregiver. No, I don't like it. Okay. Makes me uncomfortable. To each their own. Okay, this party at Buddy's. First of all, where is Buddy? It's obvious. I mean, we know he lives there and he's in town, so he's going to be home early. How did anybody think any of this was a good idea? Yeah. And nobody said no at any point. Again, full of anxiety. It reminds me of some parties that I threw when I was in like high school and in but college. your parents away? Yeah, I had one really bad one my mm. freshman year of college. I grew up in Miami 
and had this massive blowout party in the middle of the summer. We broke the air conditioner because the doors were open all night and I'd left the thermostat down at like 60 degrees. And it was just, it was bad. People smoking inside the house. No, you can't. You've got to set at least some ground rules. Yeah, it was bad. My little brother walked in and he was like eight years old or nine years old at the time. And he goes, it looks like somebody drove a go-kart through here. And I'm like, shut up, Ryan. I couldn't find the tap to the keg was missing. And then my other little brother, who was like four years old at the time, I found him playing with it in his bedroom. It was bad. We had a party at my best friend's house in high school, and we thought we did such a good job of cleaning up everything. But in the bottom of the pool, like we didn't check to think the bottom of the pool for anything, but her cousin went swimming and she came out and handed us like a beer bottle and cigarette butts. And she goes, did you guys have a party with beer and cigarettes? And we were like, what? No. You're always going to get caught. I mean, that's the rules. But yeah, if this party makes you anxious, wait till you see what's going on with Smash in the old movie theater here. I did see what happened with Smash at the movie theater. And I want to ask you a specific question, Derek. Did it bring back any like flashbacks for you? Any feelings, memories? Because of my theater experience? Your movie theater experience. What are you trying to talk about here, Stacey? (laughs) Remember, we're all trying to figure out how to return to society post-COVID and be humans. Okay, Stacey's trying to pull this out. (laughs) I Maybe like four months ago, I went to go see a movie with a buddy of mine, and we're about an hour and 45 minutes into the movie, and the woman in front of me pulls out her cell phone. And immediately, I can feel my blood starting to boil because she's sitting there texting on her phone. And I'm like, okay, calm down, Derek. You don't Mm -hmm. know. This might be an emergency. Maybe her child is, you don't know. Fair enough. chill out. So I chill out. You know what I mean? My, I can, I'm lowering my own blood pressure. And then I look down, and I, like a minute's gone by. She's still on her phone. And now she's on Instagram. And then she's taking a picture. And like literally at this point, three minutes have gone by. Of what? And I take a deep breath and I go, excuse me, um, would you mind taking your phone outside if you're going to be on it? And she goes, mind your own business. And I exploded. <laughs> I can't even tell you it's not safe for the show. The expletives that came out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I wound up getting thrown out of a a movie theater. To be fair, so did she. 45 years old. Yes, so did she. Okay, end of the episode. I found this question from Devin to be really interesting. And he was asking Santiago, would Buddy care at all about you if you couldn't play football? If I remember correctly, when we had Brad Leland, who plays Buddy Garrity on the show, we actually discussed this. And I think at this point, Maybe early on, he had some ulterior motives when it came to Santiago. Mm. I think part of it was to get back in good graces with Lila. And then part of it was also he saw a potential stud athlete that would help Dylan win. But I think at this point, I really do think that he cares about this kid. I hear you, but I'm coming from the same place that I come from with the one that shan't be named in that I don't think Voodoo's a bad guy. And I don't necessarily think Devin's a bad guy. I think he makes bad choices. And I think Devin really does care for Santiago. If Santiago couldn't play football, if he didn't have any strength at all, Buddy wouldn't care about him at all. But because he did, now Buddy's grown to care about him. Buddy wouldn't have taken him into his apartment. That's not a bad thing. He probably wouldn't have even known he existed. It is just like a moral question thrown out by Devin that I pondered for a while. I think it's a wonderful thing that you as a person try to look at all sides of a human being. But between you and me, I think Devin is bad news. I just don't he's, think he's a he's good He's bad dude. news. I just don't know if he's a bad person. And I don't I think, think we'll find person. out because I don't think he comes back, does he? No, I think he's done. That kills me because I really do love him as an and actor. I can't remember, to be honest with you, if he does come I back think or this not. Is a- and he might just be a device. But yeah, I'm not going to give him that. See you later, Devin. Hit the bricks, pal. Bye, Devin. We've got Michael Waxman coming on. we got to talk to Michael Waxman. He knows way more than we do.
We are thrilled to have the multi-talented Michael Waxman on the show with us today. Michael was a first AD, director, and producer on Friday Night Lights and has more credits than you can possibly imagine. Michael was the second AD on When Harry Met Sally and first AD on numerous hit films, including Last of the Mohicans, Drop Dead Fred, Rudy, A Low Down Dirty Shame, Heat, Scary Movie, Too Fast, Too Furious, as well as a producer and first AD on The Transporter 2, Miami Vice, Public Enemies, Collateral, Ali, and The Insider. He is also a director and producer on such TV shows as Trauma, Nashville, and he's currently the executive producer of Chicago Med. On top of all that, he's literally one of the nicest guys in the business. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Is there anything that I missed? All the little things that I did on my way up. Well, shoot. I mean, I worked with Frank Sinatra on a movie and I got to actually cue Frank Sinatra to action Frank. I mean, you know, things like that. That actually leads me to my first question. You started out as a production assistant and eventually moved up to First AD. Can you explain exactly what a yeah. First AD does and basically how crucial you are to the overall success and failure of a film or TV show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A First AD, his main job is to support the director and take the script and make it into something that's shootable as far as a schedule and all the elements that are in any one scene. So we break it down into its various parts and then make sure every department covers what it needs to bring on the day of shooting and prepare and say, this is the day of shooting, and then get all the actors involved on the day of shooting and make sure that the day of shooting is run efficiently so that we schedule that as well. So we need these actors and they need to be in hair and makeup at a certain time so they're ready to go. And then on the set, we make sure that the director is supported when it comes time for him to say action. But you're also the guys a lot of times that are saying, hey, we're losing lighter. We've got to get this scene in the can. We got to get this in and we got to keep moving, guys. I mean, you're making sure that everything yeah. is on schedule. And it really is one of those jobs, guys, that people outside of the movie business may not really understand it or, or know exactly what you guys do. But thank you for explaining that to us. But if you've worked on a set where you didn't have a good first AD, you knew it because you oh, probably didn't you know wind it. up getting all your coverage. It's crazy what a bad first AD is and then having a guy like you on set. And that was one of the things working with you. You were always so calm, even when things are going crazy. I mean, there's things that happen on a movie set or on a film set that are completely and totally unexpected. You may be shooting a scene and it's supposed to be outside and it's supposed to be hot out. Next thing you know, it's freezing cold and there's rain everywhere. And how do you adjust to those moments and just roll with the punches and make sure that you're getting all the shots in your days? You do need to be calm and you do need to, you know, you need to look at the bigger picture. I've always, when I approach the job of a first AD, I've always approached it kind of with the director's idea in mind. I did that. And that's why I ended up directing on Friday Night Lights. I mean, I think that Jason Kadams and Jeffrey Reiner, they saw that and they said, oh, you know what? This guy could do it because he sees the script. And he sees the actors from that director's point of view. That's why they gave me the chance. You know, it was very interesting. What happened was I came back. I had just done a film called Miami Vice. So I was gone for 11 months out of Texas. And I got home and my wife said, you're not leaving again. <laughs> <laughs> and I had one daughter that was just starting high school. The other one was starting junior high. And there were two things that were happening in Austin, Texas. One was a TV show and the other was a movie. The movie, I can't remember what movie it was now. It was an unsuccessful film. And the TV <laughs> show was Friday Night Light. And 
I said, okay, I'm going to do the TV show. My wife said, do the TV show. Stay in those episodes, you know, and I happened to know the producer. Nan Bernstein was producing the show. And Nan and I were friends back from our New York days. And she was a location manager, long hair location manager. We all went to the same parties and all this kind of stuff in New York back in those days, in the 80s. So she called me and said, come and do this show, Michael. You'll love it. So I said, okay. So I went and did the show, took a major cut in pay. I mean, a third of what I was making on movies (laughs) to come and do this TV show. But I was home. And (laughs) it turned out to be Friday Night Lights, which turned out to give me a whole television career. I hadn't done television in so many years. I mean, I did TV movies when I lived in New York back in the days of TV movies. Actually, Mike, I wanted to ask you, because I wasn't kidding when I said at the start of this interview that you're literally one of the nicest people in the business. I mean, you're just a good dude across the board. But how the hell did a nice guy like you get started in this business to begin with? I mean, you told me that you at one point were queuing Frank Sinatra. So how did you start out? I mean, I know you started out as a production assistant, but same thing with Fred Rogers too, right? With Mr. Rogers? Yes, that was my first job. I was still in college. I went to Brooklyn College and studied a film and television. And in those days, TV was holy mackerel, those giant freaking cameras, you know, on the <laughs> big dolly that you'd have to push around in the studio and it was all black and white. And I had been a Super 8 filmmaker before that. So I did that in high school. I made little Super 8 movies. And then when I got to college and I took these TV classes, I would make these little films that I would be able to run on the film chain in the television department. And then I also studied all the film stuff and made films in college. So the last year of school, I got into this program, which was a work-study program. And I needed a production assistant on a show called Old Friends, New Friends which was Fred Rogers' foray into adult <laughs> you know, adult TV. And it was like looking at people who were established versus people who were trying to make it. And the episode that I remember most that I worked on was a show with Fred Rogers was the host. And we went to Los Angeles. I got to go to California as a kid. I was a kid oh, in California. I stayed on Hollywood Boulevard. Sunset Strip, I was like freaking out. And I met Milton Berle. What? You know who Milton Berle is? Yes, you guys know. Some people know Milton Berle. Say, remember his first line to me says, Oh my God, kid, if my zipper could talk. That was funny. Oh my God. (laughs) He told me I was a little kid. I'll never forget that. It was by two filmmakers, Carolyn Barron and Arthur Barron, with two filmmakers. They had an apartment on 63rd Street and 2nd Avenue in Manhattan. And I, yeah. I would go to their apartment and go upstairs and work out of their house. And anyway, so I went to L.A. and it was Milton Berle and this young comedian named Jimmy Restivo. Milton Berle refused to go see him. So we had to videotape his act and then show it to Milton Berle. Anyway. <laughs> Whatever, but I got to go to Milton Berle's house and meet him. And that was working with uh, Fred Rogers. So I had my first job. That Just was the it dichotomy was. of Fred Rogers and Milton Berle right there is comedy in and of itself. I yes. love it. Yeah. Sweet man. I mean, really and truly, the things you think that he did I mean, he really was a genius and really was just that guy. 
I mean, yeah. it was kind of amazing. He was that guy. Fred so, Rogers. Yeah, uh, true. So you, then you fell in love. You were like, this is what I want to do, right? I want to be in this industry. Yes. I fell in love with it. Then when I graduated, I had no work. I was looking in the New York Times and in the jobs thing. What should I do? And then I got a call from a buddy of mine that I went to school with. His mom was somehow involved with some commercial company. And I started doing commercials. So I drove trucks and picked up equipment and drove actors around. And, but whenever I was able to be on the set, I stood there and I watched. And I was the first one if somebody said, I need that, I would go, you know, and grab it and pick it up. And it, so you became someone that these guys knew and wanted around. You were helpful. Man, that was it. I started working. When I met, I had a couple of rabbis along the way that really, really helped me. One was a guy named Joe Napolitano, passed away, you know, maybe about a year ago. He was a wonderful first assistant director. And my first big movie that I did was a film called Blowout, which was directed by Brian De Palma. It starred John Travolta. We shot in Philadelphia. It had a tremendous cast. I mean, it wasn't just John Travolta. Uh, But, you know, of course, you know, you think about him. We shot in Philadelphia. I did the whole movie in the prep. And I learned how to prep a movie. I learned what a first AD was, you know, there. Because Joe really took me under his wing. And I learned about scheduling. He had a terrible handwriting. So I redid the whole schedule, which that time was handwritten on little pieces of cardboard that just stuck her and now it's all on a computer. Yeah, but I learned. And yeah. that was it, man. 1980. Boom. I was wow. on my way. I was in the DGA in 1981 and oh worked ever since. Yeah. I'm going to be know, missing working, some names here, but I just wanted for our listeners to get an sure. idea of some of the people that you've worked with in the career that you've had. Sure. I'm going to rattle off this list here. <laughs> and I know that I'm missing a ton of people on this list. I didn't even know about John Travolta. Sure. So that's one right there. And Frank Sinatra, <laughs> Stacey told me about that one. But you've worked yeah. with some of the biggest actors and directors on the planet. Yeah. Here's a list, guys. Al Pacino, <laughs> Robert De Niro, Will Smith, John Voight, Michael Mann, Mark Ruffalo, Dan Aykroyd, Meg Ryan, Vince Vaughn, <laughs> Carrie Mulligan. Rob Reiner, Tom Cruise, Eddie Murphy, Christian Bale, Channing Tatum, John Favreau, Jada Pinkett Smith, Jamie Foxx, Colin Farrell, Val Kilmer, Russell Crowe, Christopher Plummer, Johnny Depp, Daniel Day-Lewis, Billy Crystal, Carrie Fisher, Javier Bardem. I mean, we're talking about the who's who of Hollywood. Now tell us who was the worst. I'm just kidding, don't. (laughs) You've also had dinner with Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela, Barbara Streisand. I mean, yes. But I do want to say this, Michael. For Barbara Streisand. I want to talk about this real quick, though, real quick. I sat next to Barbara Streisand. I can't. I can't. Unbelievable on the Prince of Tides. Michael, I would be unable to speak if I was next to Barbara Streisand. I have a question here, though. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Derek. I'm sorry. (laughs) Some of the names on this list that I just mentioned have a wee bit of a reputation for say, can we say that maybe they're a little difficult? And I'm not going to have you name names. I don't want want to do that. (laughs) But as a director and a producer and as a first AD, how do you rein in those egos? How do you keep the production moving and on schedule and under budget? Some of the stories of some of the people on that list, some of them have had major, major blowouts. And how do you, as a first AD and as a director, kind of coddle that? I mean, I know you're always complimenting me as an actor. And I'm like, oh, does Michael really mean that? Or is he just trying to get me? 
to always do. Yeah, really, really hard. I mean, for me, coming being a guy from Brooklyn who really just worked like, let's get it done. Come on, we can do it. And then he get an actor who does not want to come out of his trailer. Oh God, I love it. Does not want to show up on time. And you're just like, what the heck? And there's absolutely nothing in certain cases that you can do to get them to come to the set. You You guys can't see this, but Michael reached up to pull hair that is no longer there. (laughs) That's probably why he's pulled it all out because of us actors. I have seen pictures of Michael when he was younger, though, and that guy had a full head of hair and it was beautiful. But I can only assume it's people like Stacy and I. Yeah, we're the most Jesus. difficult. I don't know that we were difficult. We were angels compared to some of the people on that list, I would imagine. Some of the people, yeah. I remember doing this movie with Thomas Carter. Thomas Carter was a wonderful director in this movie. I can't remember the name of the film now. It was in L.A. or in San Francisco or, God, I don't know. We might have been in Arizona. And one certain actor would not come out of his trailer. And I... He told Thomas, and Thomas was like, what am I going to do? I said, Thomas, remember, we're not doing a Thomas Carter movie. We're doing a movie, you know? (laughs) You know, and that's the thing. You really needed a certain moment to balance is at the end of the day, who is going to make this movie make money? So if it's that guy, he doesn't want to come out. He gets to. He gets to sit in his trailer. Yeah. I mean, the people who are paying for it just have to understand, I can't do anything. And I would tell them, I can't do anything. You go do it. You know, here, you go take the radio. You go home to come out. I can't, I can't do anything. So you just have to accept it. Yeah. We're talking about all of the different hats that you've worn in your career too. And I just personally, I remember whenever we would shoot at the landing strip, you being a first AD and just kind of in charge of the set, you made me feel so safe because it wasn't necessarily the safest atmosphere and I wasn't wearing a lot of clothes and there were like extras there and the whole thing was very weird, but that was my job. You made me very safe. I could come to you if anything was wrong. But also we talked about a couple episodes ago where you had a little cameo where you played a detective (laughs) and and got the kids out. Michael, listen, you're a good actor too. You know, not really, but I do (laughs) But really. (laughs) I've been in a few films. I've played a few things. I was in a film called Highway to Hell, which was directed by a Dutch director named Atta de Jong. We did it in 1989. Yeah, out in the desert, in the Utah desert. And Ben Stiller was in it. So was his mom and dad. Oh, wow. I got to work with Ben Stiller. I got to work with Stiller and Mira. (laughs) It's like when I was a kid growing up, I remember seeing their comedy show, which, of course, all you people, if you're not as old as me, you don't even know who these folks are. I mean, I did. I just looked that up. Brian Helgeland was the writer on that. Yes. Yes, Brian yeah. Helgeland, who ended up being yeah, cutting up, being so famous and writing so much. L.A. Confidential and won an Oscar oh, for wow. it. Yes. He was also the writer and director on 42, which I was in. Yes. I mean, tremendous thing. It was a crazy movie. We did crazy stuff. I don't remember why I brought it up. But I was the beer pitch man. Yes. And I had a whole giant monologue pitching this beer from hell. Oh, <laughs> I'm watching this. 
I love it. I'll tell you another really good one. Okay, so we did a movie called Collateral. Yeah, Michael Mann. Yeah, and it was with Jamie Foxx mm-hmm. and Tom Cruise, right? Jamie Foxx plays a taxi cab driver. Yes. And the, you know, the original script was actually written in New York and Michael Mann rewrote the script and moved it to LA. So it kind of changed it around a little bit, taxi cab driver and all that kind of good stuff. And Michael wanted me to do the voice, you know, when we were shooting over the radio to be like the taxi dispatch mm-hmm. guy who was calling Jamie on the radio, like, where are you? All this kind of good stuff. So he just, you know, it was easy. I was on the radio anyway, and I call into the taxi cab. So then when Michael calls me when we're doing posts on the show and says, hey, I want you to come and do this and be the voice of the guy, the, the dispatcher. The dispatcher. Yeah. And I was like, why? He says, you know, I, I'm like, all these people, they're no good. I want you to do it. Well, you have like the roughest voice of all these people and other <laughs> So I ended up going to a studio in here in Texas and watched the film and did the voiceover for that. Yeah, I mean, you've worn a few hats in your career. A lot of hats. hats. So we've already discussed all these different films that you were first AD on and that you were a producer on. And correct me if I'm wrong, but this episode of Friday Night Lights, episode 12 of season two, is actually the first television show that you directed, network television show that you directed. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. Correct. How did that happen? Well, like I say, I think they felt this was Jason and Jeffrey that they wanted to give me the chance. They didn't want me to go off and do a different job. They wanted me to stay in Texas and do Friday Night Lights. So So in order to do that, they said, well, let's give them a shot, you know, directing. So it was their chance to do it. Of course, in our wonderful season two of Friday Night Lights, the debacle season of of Friday Night Lights. Our truncated truncated season two. Yeah. Yeah. Our truncated 17 episode season because of the strike. No story, never finished. uh, But that's the finished well, you know. One of the things that's really exciting to me about that, though, Michael, is that, I mean, you directed one episode in the second season, then you wind up directing three episodes in the third, three episodes in the fourth. And then by the time the fifth season rolls around, not only are you directing, you're basically a directing showrunner at this point in time. And by the time Mm -hmm. that the show ends, you're directing the last episode of Friday Night Lights. So that iconic episode that uh, to this day is, in my opinion, one of the greatest finales to any TV show. I mean, you took the reins. So that was one of the things about Friday Night Lights, for those of you at home that I always found so interesting is, I mean, we had people, Karen Wacker, for instance, the other day, I'm sitting there watching Kate Winslet win an award. And Karen Wacker, who was Nan Bernstein's assistant, who basically always looked like the world was on her shoulders. She looked like she never slept. (laughs) <laughs> Lovely gal, but just exhausted 24-7. And Mayor of Easttown, the other day, Kate Winslet wins maybe the Golden Globe. I can't remember what it is. And the first person she thanks is Karen Wacker. Oh, I love it. And I'm it. going, it, I mean, one of the wonderful things about Friday Night Lights, though, is people who were camera operators became DPs. First ADs yeah. became directors. It was a big jump for a lot of people in their careers. I mean, yeah. I got to think, if it weren't <laughs> yeah. for Friday Night Lights, yeah. you're not going to be the directing showrunner, executive producer of Chicago Med. Chicago Med. Yeah. Step up. Absolutely. There's no question. It was wonderful. It was really wonderful. And I kind of tried to pull that same kind of stuff in when I did Med. You try to move people up from within 
in instead of going out and finding other folks to do the job and say, okay, who's doing a really good job and deserves that chance and deserves to move up. And yeah. certainly we did. My God, remember Tony, mm-hmm. the PA? Yes. Oh, God, Tony? yes. Directing. Yeah. He directed his first episode in Georgia. I know he directed an episode because I saw it somewhere or he oh, told me. Or, he's so I happy. I love Tony. Awesome. He's got oh, this I life. Him. I mean, I don't know that much about it, but I know that he's, you know, I send Christmas cards back and forth with him. And so, you know, we kind of communicate that way. And once in a while, we'll talk. I mean, fantastic. You betcha. That yeah. was it. When I directed a happen look, episode 12 was an okay episode. I rewatched it just because I knew I was going to do this. And mm-hmm. it's tough for me because I watch these episodes and I love the show so much. I love the character so much. It doesn't take me a second that my molecules fall back into everything that's happening. And I believe I'm in that world. So for me, it's all great. You know, you can read things about it and they go, oh, this episode is just so typical TV and that other thing. Look, it told very big thematic stories. Why Carlotta left so fast? Who knows? Listen, maybe <laughs> she, maybe secretly she knew a writer strike was happening and Carlotta didn't tell any of us. Was there a time from when you first started on the show where you were like, wait, we have something really special here? Was there a time when it hit you that like, this is a thing? I can't remember if there was a moment, but I'll tell you what I remember is at the end of the first season, and of course, we never knew if we were going to have a season two. Right. Well, this was the first show for a lot of the kids in Texas. Maybe their second show. Maybe, you know, maybe they did a little bit of something on something else. This is the first really long. I knew it because I knew this was special. There was no question. I don't know when I realized it. Maybe around episode seven or eight, something like that. Look, Jeff Reiner really put me in that head. I came in to that. I'll never forget this. He was directing one of the episodes. We had some cars that we were going to have lined up. I said, what color do you want the cars to be? He went, whatever's over there. (laughs) Whatever's real. Just don't worry about it. Then I started to get it. I started to get what this was because I wasn't used to it. I think it was something that maybe we strived for creatively with other directors trying to get back what we saw. I mean, I'll give you an example. of When I would scout with Michael Mann and we would villages in Africa or in these favelas in South America and see the rawness and the realness of this poverty. We see it as poverty. The people who are there don't, because that's their life. And that's what you're trying to capture. Is that life, not seeing it through the eye of me who sees it as poverty, but to see it through that life. And that's what you strive to do. So now on Friday Night Whites, I think we got so close to that because we would throw actors into the real situation and give them a guide with the script. And then they would know, certainly by episode seven, as the characters grew within them and the writers got to see what the actors did with the characters and the actors had more confidence in who their characters were, that they could just allow themselves to become these characters in these real situations that we would put them in or real places. 
And then the situations would become real because they would become real to the people that were around them because it yeah. was real. Yeah. That football game was real. Yeah. The, the past was real. Let people be real. And yeah. that's what I think infected the show. And then with the camera guys who were just brilliant and the directors of photography who were brilliant, you know, Todd and, and David Boyd. Yeah. And, and they just were able to just rock it. Mm-hmm. And the operators just rock it and let them find it. You know, just fall into the city, get back far enough and let the actors do their thing because they were into it and react to what was happening. That's really hard to make happen again. Yeah. You know, there was something you said there that it reminded me of a conversation Stacy and I had about the show a couple weeks back where we were talking about a scene where Kyle's driving down the road. And I said, it's really asinine, but I want you guys to look at the bugs on the windshield. Every other film or television show that I've ever worked on in my life, that car would have been pristine. They would have taken Windex to that windshield on the inside, on the outside, and it would have been crystal clear. We didn't do that on Friday Night Lights. And it's one little teeny thing. And it's not laziness. It was just, look, if there's bugs on the windshield, there's bugs on the windshield. It feels real. Everything feels lived in. And as an actor, every scene that you worked on, every location that you shot in felt lived in. I remember shooting a scene at the ferret guy's house, Guy Raston, Joey Oglesby. And and I said, I don't want to go in there first because I want to feel it and see it. I mean, there's a smell that's going to be in that place. I know it because I know the places that we shoot. And so that was one of the things that, I mean, it was a legitimate kinesthetic response that you got as an actor on that show. You didn't have to act anything. It was just, it was there. It was real. You were in that place. You were in that space. If it was hot outside, it was hot. Deal with it. And if you're sweating, you're sweating. You're going to sweat. People sweat. We're not going to have you come over and get cleaned up and do last looks. And that's a testament to you and the way that the show was run. One of the things I wanted to talk about, because I do remember when we wrapped on the show, the last episode of FNL, the final scene that we shot was on that plot of land that Riggins buys. And, and right after that scene, you in particular gave a beautiful speech to the whole cast and crew. And it's very similar to what you were just saying, where you said, and I remember you had a bit of a laugh. You said, I've been in this business a long time. And I want you all, especially some of you younger folks, to remember this moment and hold on to it because experiences and shows like Friday Night Lights do not come along very often. And I remember that and I took it to heart. I've been fortunate enough to keep working and I've had a pretty decent little career for myself after Friday Night Lights. But Friday Night Lights really was lightning in a bottle. And I know that we all try to bring a little bit of that FNL mojo with us on any project that we work on. But how do we carry that to the other projects that we work on? Yeah, we try. It's hard. It ain't going to be all of everything because all of everything lined up. The planets aligned. It was that magic moment of everybody got it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you could step back and it was a thing of beauty. This magnificent creative space that was there that just opened up. Certainly, I've tried to do it on other shows because I've run a couple of shows since then and people don't want to do it. It's really hard because it takes so much letting go. And it's so hard for people to let go, especially, you know, when you get to the tops creative and you're dealing with, you know, you're dealing with a lot of all those things on the line, a lot of money and a lot of eyeballs that you want. I think the only way you could do it is if you start from the very, very, very beginning. And then you just really need the time to be able to get your actors and your crew and everybody to to feel that. Look, we didn't do it in the first episode. Pete Berg and his ability to cast 
and Jeff Reiner and Jason Kadams and their ability to cast as we got down the line when Pete was less involved, you know, but although, you know, Pete involved with the bigger roles just seemed to know that there was something inside of each of these performers that they would find, the performers would find, you actors would find inside of you that would get you to the place that was probably inside of Pete's head, maybe when he came up with these characters to begin with, or Snuffy Amina or whatever, that worked out for the most part. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, That is so much of it. They picked these people and it was luck, but it was also them where we would play in the space that they gave us. And there's a lot of actors that wouldn't be comfortable in what we did because it was really dirty and like ego goes out the door and all this stuff. But we just like, I'll play, I'll play in your space. I'm fine with this. And you did it with each other. And that was the thing, because I think you got to the point where if you were an actor and you would trust the other actor enough to do these scenes and to be with them on a really special level, I'm not going to say what that level is because I don't know what it's called, but you know, you get to a level that's beyond acting and it's really when you're touching each other as human beings. And I think that doesn't happen the first moment, but when the actors start trusting each other enough, oh my God, then you can get what happens between Connie and Kyle because they trusted each other enough to to have that kind of relationship on film. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. Not just with the actors, but across departments. I mean, it's wardrobe having faith in the actors and actors having faith in wardrobe and actors having faith in... I mean, it's not to say that there weren't ever egos. There's always going to be egos on every set. Friday Night Lights was one of the... I mean, I've worked on a lot of things at this point and people were okay to say, hey, you know what? Maybe you're right in this. Maybe Michael's right. Maybe this person's right. And and it's not ego anymore. It was okay. Mm -hmm. I trust Michael. And if Michael gives me a direction in this scene, he says that this is probably what's best for the scene. I'm going to trust him. I don't feel that way about every director that I work with, but I felt that (laughs) way with you. I felt that way 100% with Reiner. And, you know, pretty much, I'd say 99.9% of the directors we had on that show, I felt like, okay, if they're telling me this, I feel comfortable. I felt like I was taken care of and that there wasn't ego involved. Or honestly, to be fair, I won't name names, but there were directors on this show I didn't feel that way with, but I had you as my first AD and you were always going to make it okay. So I trusted the process with the family that was there. Yeah. Yeah. It was wonderful to be able to learn from the actors too, because I trusted the actors to make right decisions or at least to understand why they would make the decisions they were making. And if I understood why they were making that decision, then we could have a good discussion about it. I mean, you're making a decision for a reason, for whatever dramatic reason or personal reason that you have, you know, it was always interesting to kind of find out about that. We'll use that in whatever way we could. But I'll tell you something funny. The little girl, Gracie Bell was born on the show. There were triplets. Yes, mm-hmm. they were. You probably yeah. talked about it. We bring all three in, everybody get paid. Yeah. But- <laughs> There was really one that she was the best out of the three as far as being on the set and feeling comfortable. Mm -hmm. And she ended up being the one that grew up on the show with this. Because, you know, they grew up, they actually all looked pretty different. They started to look different. Yeah, they definitely started to look different. There was one that did not like Kyle. There was one that Kyle (laughs) couldn't win over. 
That's funny. Yeah, but it was funny. And then she grew up in the show. So by season five, she was the right age. And I remember her first line. I what mean, was Kyle was grabbing his wallet to go out. And I think he said, it was funny, it was like, do you want to go out and get hamburgers? Gracie Bell. And she was like, yeah, dad, let's go. Or some kind of thing like that. Or yeah. whatever she called them. And I mean, we all went like, huh? <laughs> Oh my God, she spoke. Oh, so she, she just improved it. Said a fucking word ever. She improvised the line. I love it. Perfect. She played that's in exactly our space. What, right. I love that's it. That's exactly what FNL is, right? Yeah. Here's a list, like whatever, two and a half year old kid improvising a line in the show. Oh my God, <laughs> that's great. Perfect. And that was that freedom that you had as an actor. I remember being on Grey's Anatomy and there was a line where it was like, oh God, oh God, oh God. And I think I said, oh God, twice. And the writer was like, "Uh, no, you you have to say it three times. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, oh, sorry, my bad. Not Friday Night Lights. This was my first gig after Friday Night Lights. I mean, that was my point is that there was that freedom that we had as actors, but also that death of ego, it felt like from pretty much all departments. Everyone was there just to put on the best show that they possibly could. You were the guy running most of that. So a a lot of that was on your shoulders, man. We have taken up enough of your time for one day, Michael. Thank you so much for being on the show with us. You bet. It's just always great to see you and talk to you. It's been too long. The last time I saw you, was you and I did a talk back at TC you a couple years back. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, oh, that God. was probably like yes. six years ago. Yeah. Yes, my daughter was there. She graduated TCU and now I'm a grandpa. I was um, going to tell you, Michael, I want you to kiss that grandbaby. I saw pictures and I want to smush his face. Yeah. <laughs> yes, so I cute. know, me too. Oh, yesterday I got to hold him for two hours. So that was my oh, wonderful yes. thing. And my other daughter is pregnant as well. So she's due in September. So oh, um, wow. we'll find out next week if it's a boy or a girl. And, you know, so now that's what I'm enjoying being a grandpa. That's I nice. love it. Thank, Thank you so thank much. Thank you. With us. I miss you. Thank you. Yeah, I miss you too, buddy. God bless you both. Because that is it for season two, episode 12. But please join us next time for episode 13 entitled Humble Pie. But until then, clear eyes. Full hearts. Can't lose. Clear Eyes, Full Hearts is a podcast presentation of Cadence 13 in association with Black Barrel Media and Ritual Productions. Executive producers are Stacey Oristano and Derek Phillips, Chris and Mandy Wimmer for Black Barrel Media, and Steve Walters for Ritual Productions. Our producer is Miranda Parham. Send your questions to clearEyesFullHeartsPod at gmail.com. Find us on social media. I'm Stacey Oristano on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Derek Phillips on Twitter and underscore Derek Phillips on Instagram. And check out our websites, ClearEyesFullHeartsPod.com, Cadence13.com, and BlackBarrelMedia.com. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next week.